We're looking this morning at the subject of being grafted into Christ from our text in John 15. And the first thing we want to talk about is our relationship to God. And I want you to think firstly of experience. Think experience when you hear that. This is how we often speak of relationship. We will say, well, I have a good relationship with my children. By which we mean that things are positive. There's no tension, there's no infighting, there's no jealousy, there's no bad blood between them and us. We would say things are good. We, we, get, we get along. We help one another because we love one another. We do not denigrate one another because we respect each other's point of view. Our relationship is good and we're talking about our experience. We are talking about experience when we speak this way and we do this not only with family members but in other areas as well. For example, we talk of good relationships and bad or of helpful relationships and harmful, or of positive relationships and negative relationships. And in all of these things, we are referring to the day-to-day -day interaction that we have with other people, and we use various adjectives to describe the nature of that fellowship. Likewise, the Bible teaches that we can have an experiential relationship with God. A lot of people claim to have had this. They refer to visions that they have seen or impressions that they have felt or of miracles they have witnessed. And they attribute this to having had an experience with God or at least with the supernatural. But these are not the encounters with God that the Bible refers to when it talks about fellowship. Pagan people and mystics claim these experiences all the time, but such experience never goes anywhere. They do not change anything in the recipient. They're like an epiphany, which is here today and gone tomorrow, and God is not necessarily in the experience. People are left unfazed, still blasphemers, still strangers to God, still God-haters, still morally corrupt as before. But they experience God. Oh, really? Really? They think so. But they're still blasphemers, still strangers to God. Still God-haters. Why? Because fellowship with God is not firstly and foremost an experience, but an objective fact. But they're all into the experience. But the experience with who? With what? And that's the second point. Think objective fact. When a couple marries, they establish a relationship with one another. Now it can be good or it can be bad. It can start out good and sour in time. But even if their experience changes from loving compassion 
to maybe hostility and turmoil, the relationship remains intact because relationship is more than shared experiences. It is a unity of life. We say in the vows, for better or for worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health. That's a lot of diverse experience, isn't it? And so long as we both shall live. Those are the vows that we take. Yeah, the experiences in a relationship go up and down, sideways in every which way. But the relationship remains intact if it's a good relationship. Koinonia, this word we're looking at for fellowship, expresses fellowship firstly and foremost as an objective fact. All believers are related to each other. We are wed to Christ. We share mutually in His life as His bride, the church. The experiences that we go through, while real, are secondary to this objective union And it is only those who are objectively related to Christ who can experience Christ in any true sense. Without union, there's no communion. People err to talk about experiencing God when they're not related to God on His terms. This is why they misinterpret their experiences. They think they have seen God or that they have talked to Him or He to them when they don't even know the God of whom they make these very confident assertions. How do you know that that was God that you saw? Well, I... How do you know that that was God who spoke to you out in the field? Well, I... They don't know God, so how can they interpret their experiences as having been with God? What they're experiencing is something perhaps otherworldly. But you know, there's otherworldly creatures that are out there. And John tells us, you better test the spirits to see whether they are of God. Because if you don't test them, and by the way, you have to have an objective standard by which to test them. People all the time say, don't tell me what I, what I experienced. I know what I saw. I know what I heard. You know, and they're real hard on the experiences. But their experiences, at least how they explain the experience, are so way off the mark with regard to what the Bible says about God that we have a right to throw up a big question mark. And what is more, they ought to be throwing up the big question mark. The Apostle John put it this way, no one, listen to this, no one who denies the Son, S-O-N, Jesus, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. 1 John 2 verse 23. The question here, the key here is, how are you related to Christ Oh, well, I don't have anything to do with Jesus Christ. You you Christians are always talking about Jesus Christ. Then you don't have God. And you have not experienced God. And you don't know God. John makes it very clear. The pathway to God is through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So I ask again, how are you related 
to Christ. This is the key. And that's our second point in the outline there, partakers of the life of Christ. This is illustrated in Jesus' metaphor of the vine and the branches, our text, John 15. Look at verse 4 and following. Remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. John 15, verse 4 and 5. If an unbeliever claims to have seen Christ, heard Christ, experienced Christ, and yet has no spiritual fruit, no change in his life, the experience, the fellowship is bogus. That is what Christ is saying. If they retort, we'll say, well, you know, I don't care much about fruit. I know what I saw. I know what I heard. Observe here that Jesus himself makes it clear that bearing fruit for God is the proof that one is attached to Christ in true fellowship. Speaking of God the Father as the gardener, Jesus says, verse 2, He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. It gets the axe. While every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Verse 2. Are you getting that? Pruning to make a branch more Fruitful. Why is that? Look at verse 8. This is my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Oh, you're not interested in fruit, huh? A changed life becomes the proof True fellowship with God through vital union. That's an objective relationship with Christ. But where this is missing, any claim of experiencing God or being in a right relationship with God is false. God Himself cuts off the sucker branches who cling externally to Christ but have no vital union with Him through faith and repentance. Oh, it gets worse. Look at verse 6. And if anyone does not remain in me, he's like a branch that's thrown away. Yeah, that's what you do when you cut off branches. It's thrown away and withers, and such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. This is the fate of all those who claim to have experienced God but are devoid of any spiritual fruit in their lives. And by the way, we don't even have to guess on what the fruit is. Holy Spirit produced fruit is spoken of by the Apostle Paul. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, 
self-control. Against such things there is no law, no prohibition. Those who belong to Christ Jesus, I'm still reading scripture, have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and its desires. Here is real, observable, objective change, you see, that's going on. Since we live by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22 through 25. Bearing the fruit of... The, oh, who's the Spirit, by the way, that's in us? It's the Spirit of the living Christ. He went back to glory and poured out His Spirit upon His church. That's what happened on the day of Pentecost that we studied last week. Peter's preaching. The Spirit comes upon them as the preachers, but also upon the crowd as conversion and repentance and faith was granted to these people. And immediately we saw the fruit. They started dedicating themselves to those four things that we talked about. Bearing fruit for God is an important evidence that we belong to God. Jesus told the parable of the fig tree, and it was all about this. Let me read it for you. Unless you repent, you too will all perish. And then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it. But he did not find any. And so he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I have been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree, and I haven't found any. Three years. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? You see that the same kind of similarity that we get here in John 15. Branch is attached to Christ, not vitally grafted in, but attached to Him. It's a sucker branch. It's kind of trying to take as much from Christ as it can from the soil, the fig tree in the soil. But it isn't producing anything. There's no apples on it, there's no pears on it, there's no nothing on that. It's just leaves out all the time. Three years now I have been coming and haven't found any fruit. Cut it down, why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year. I'll dig around it, I'll fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Luke 13. Verses 5 through 9. You think fruit bearing is important to God? Think He's looking for fruit on your fig tree? On your branch? How long do you have to repent of your sin and come to Christ? In this parable, three years now I've been coming out here looking, looking, looking. I'm looking for evidence. I'm looking for fruit. It's like the branch attached to Christ. It's just sucking away the vitality, but it's not producing anything. So, again, I ask, how long do you have to repent of your sin and come to Christ? One year? Two years? How about no years? God said to the sinful people of Noah's day, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. 
Genesis 6, verse 3. And that was God saying, You will not live forever, nor will the patience of God last forever. There's an end to the patience of God. The day of God contending with you, convicting you, charging you to repent. There's a day when that comes to an end. And may I say that Israel of old sinned away. It sinned away its day of grace. The day of their salvation. And they did it through their unbelief and through their stubbornness. Stiff-necked rebellious people, the scripture says of them. And that is why the writer of Hebrews warned the New Testament descendants of that generation of Old Testament Israelites, saying this, So, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts, as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert, where your fathers, and you're linked to them, where your fathers tested and tried me, for 40 years and saw what I did. And that is why I was angry with that generation. And I said, their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. And so I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. That's the way you want it? Okay, granted, you got it. And then the writer of Hebrews goes on, See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Hebrews 3. Verse 7 through 13. Bottom line here is that there is no subjective experience of God until and unless there is first an objective relationship established through repentance and faith in Jesus. You can talk all you want about your experiences, your impressions, your feelings, your thinking, your assumptions. But until you're related to Jesus Christ by faith and repentance, unless you're related to God's Son, you're not His brother, and therefore God is not your Father. We need to get this in our hearts. God ain't messing around. The objective comes first. The subjective grows out of the objective connection. You must be a branch not clinging to the vine, but a branch grafted into the vine so that His life flows through you to produce the spiritual fruit or change that God is looking for in His orchard. And believe me, we've read enough texts this morning to show He's looking for fruit. His fruit, Holy Spirit fruit, in a person's life that says, yeah, I know God. Okay, if you know God... Here's what's going to happen. Here's what you're going to look like. Change is going to take place. Oh, I'm not concerned about fruit. Then you don't know God. I'm very concerned about fruit. It brings us to our third point, union with Christ. This is what God has accomplished in every believer. Every believer. 
He has brought us into vital union with Christ. And vital means living, not static, not dead, not marking time, but alive, alive. Christ's life lived out through us. Peter put it this way. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these, He has given us His very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate, koinonia, you may have fellowship in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. 2 Peter 1, verse 3 and 4. You want to have fellowship with God, you got to change. And He's going to change you. And He's given you everything. What Peter's saying is, He's given you everything to make the change. This is borne out in the illustration of the vine and the branches, but just as equally in the metaphor of Christ being the head of the body, His church, head, body. Just as a branch severed from a vine will be non-productive, it'll wither, it'll die, so a member of the body, think, think extremities, organs, those kind of things that are in a body, that is severed from the body will atrophy and die. Now listen to what I'm saying. You will die, but the body won't die. If a branch is cut off because it's not producing fruit, the tree doesn't die because of that. But the branch dies. Christ lives on. His body lives on. And Christ becomes your judge then. And not your Savior. Persevering in the faith is, after all, part of the faith. Jesus put it this way, all men will hate you because of me, yeah, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Mark 13, verse 13. That's hanging in there. That's perseverance. Now, does any of this sound like you can be a slacker and survive? A Christian in name only, with no substance. A believer who simply parrots platitudes, but is not living out the principles of faith in his or her life. You know, the faith centers in the faithful one, which isn't you and isn't me. The faithful one is Christ Jesus, and just as you were not good enough to gain eternal life, so you're not good enough to maintain holiness without which no one will see the Lord in peace. Don't ever get to the point in your faith where you say, well, I'm a good person. I believe in God. That's good enough. Is it good enough? James tells us the demons believe in God, but they are diabolic still. Their fellowship, their partnership is with Satan, not God. Theirs is not the belief of renouncing sin. It's not the faith of being productive, of Holy Spirit fruit. 
There's no perseverance in righteousness. They settle for status quo. God remains their enemy and held at arm's length. But they believe. Of course they believe. And by the way, that's why you see every once in the gospel accounts where Jesus is about to perform an exorcism of demons out of a person that's demon-possessed, the demon in the person will talk to Jesus and say, What do you have? Why have you come, oh, son of God? Have you come to torment us before our time? Or on one occasion, Jesus had to say, Be quiet! Because they were shouting out this, We know who you are! You are the son of the most high! Shut up! Keep quiet. Do they know God? Do they know who Christ is? Do they believe that there's a judgment day coming for them? Yes. 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 Has it changed them? No. 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 Because they're not experiencing God. They're fighting God. So I wouldn't look too heavy on your experience. Unless your experience grows out of that objective relationship of having been grafted into Christ. Now, if you are a believer this morning, we come to point two in the outline. Roads that people travel on in an attempt to live the Christian life. Here's where the rubber meets the road. Here's where we have trouble, I think, in this whole area of fellowship. So I'm going to give you these four roads. Let's take a look at them. Number one, the first road is that I can do it myself road. People think it's a matter of willpower. They say things like, well, once I set my mind to something, I can carry through to the end. Or they'll make the statement, well, my problem is, my problem is not knowing what to do. But um, once I'm informed, I can pretty well figure out how to get it done. So they're, they're kind of saying, my problem is ignorance, but you know, I need the Bible for that. And if the Bible shows me the right way, I can do it. Jesus anticipated this response and he answers in verse 4 of our text, No branch can bear fruit by itself. Verse 5, Apart from me you can do nada, nothing. And we hear that and we think, I don't know about that, you know, let me, let me, let me chew on that a little. The idea of living well as a Christian, if you just have good biblical instruction, is a lie of the devil. Many there are who are well taught or well read, but who fall miserably, fail miserably because they attempted to fly solo on their own resolve. And if this is you, it is true, it is true that you will be able to see some paltry evidence of life in Christ because after all, as I said, if you're a truly Christian, you are in union with Him by grace, but your experience will be pocked with frustration and failure and inadequacy. Because you're trying to produce fruit all by yourself. When in season, Donna will buy either... Um, She'll buy either a pound of sweet cherries or a pound of grapes for eating for us. 
And when she first comes home from the market, she washes the fruit and then she places it in a basket on our counter. And we have learned that if it is in the refrigerator, it becomes forgotten and therefore uneaten. But we have also learned when the fruit is first put into the basket on the counter, it's bright, it's plump, it's colorful, and it's tasty. But after a day or two, the skin toughens, the coloring dulls, and so does the flavor. And it isn't, it isn't very long before we're picking through, you know, the grape things or the cherry things, uh, shriveled up pieces trying to find something edible and something nutritious. Now, it's still fruit. It still has the semblance of a cherry or a grape, as the case may be. But it is greatly diminished in appearance, in nutrition, and in taste. And the point is that the further it is from the fruit tree, the less recognizable and less desirable it is. So to the fruit of the Holy Spirit, when Christ is placed in the basket, he loses his luster. He loses his appeal, his satisfaction. The fruit of the Spirit may still be there, love, joy, peace, and so on that we read earlier, but you have to work to see it and even harder to draw any spiritual nutrition from it. All of this is the result of trying to live the Christian life by your own willpower. You see the Holy Spirit's presence, but Christ is not tasty to you. He's not satisfying. Some have learned the hard way that they cannot live the Christian life by sheer willpower. They cannot experience the fruit of the Spirit by self-direction and self-energy. But we try, don't we? We try. And by the way, these people are hit and miss, mostly miss, in terms of their spiritual duties. Because their flesh can't produce can't do anything. There's a second road people try, and that's the direct opposite road. Instead of trying to live the Christian life alone, some take a completely passive route, determining to leave it all up to God. The first pilgrim says, just tell me what I need to do and I can do it. And the second pilgrim says, oh boy, this Christian life this is way too difficult for me. God will have to do it all. Back in the late 50s when I was growing up, my home church got caught up in what was called the Keswick Movement. Anyone know what the Keswick Movement is? No? Conference would be held in the summer along the seashore, usually down around New Jersey. Families from our church would go spend vacation time together learning the principles, get it now, the principles of passive Christianity. My family was involved in that. The slogan, kind of like a mantra, that was repeatedly taught was this, you need to let go and let God. Let go and let God. The higher spirituality being propagated was that you need to get out of the way so God can do something positive with you. I mean, your flesh is hindering the work of God, but if you will just step aside, 
God will take over and you'll be able to live a victorious Allah, a higher Christian life. Table talk from the Ligonier's ministry in the August edition had an article on the Keswick movement. And the author uh, makes this comment. The Keswick movement assumes that Christians experience two blessings. Now get this. The first is getting saved and the second is getting serious. The change is dramatic from a defeated life to a victorious life, from a lower life to a higher life, from a shallow life to a deeper life, from a fruitless life to a more abundant life, from being carnal to being spiritual, and from merely having Jesus as your Savior to making Jesus your Master. People experience this second blessing through surrender and faith. Let go and let God. And that movement got caught up, was caught up in the Dallas Seminary and the whole carnal Christian doctrine came about as a result of the movement. What are you going to... Now think about this. What are you going to do with a person who claims to know God and claims to be a Christian, and yet his life, he's still living like the devil. Well, don't you know? They're just a carnal Christian. That's their problem. They, 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 they haven't gotten the flesh out of the way so that the Spirit can produce the fruit in their life. I'd be surprised to know that in the early years of the movement, People like John Wesley were in this back in the 1800s. D.L. Moody, Charles Finney, Hudson Taylor, the founder of China Inland Mission. As I said, Dallas Seminary, Billy Graham and his associates were all part of the Keswick movement. Now in recent days, through the ministry of other theologians, the Keswick movement has turned completely 180 degrees and has come to a more reformed view of sanctification than this let go and let God. So today, we have people like Stott and others that are involved in the Keswick movement, and it's a different tale altogether. Let go, let God. Well, if you look in our text, Jesus anticipated this response as well. And he says in our text, verse 3, you're already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Now notice the next word. Remain in me. Again, verse 5. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Verse 6. If anyone does not remain in me, he's like a branch that is thrown away and withers, and as we've already indicated, he ends up on the burn pile. Now this repeated phrase, remain in me, is a command to action. It is not passive. It is not saying, let go and let God. Instead, it's a saying, now that you are in Christ, hang on for dear life, because the going's going to get rough. And you need Christ in your life, and you need to stick with Him. Don't let go and don't allow anyone or anything to detract from your responsibility to maintain fellowship 
with Christ. You are in partnership with God. You are part of the family of God. You must do your part to cultivate the family ties. You can't just say, God, you do it all. Or I'm, I'm not doing anything. You just do it all. Some of those that have tried route number one say, okay, I'll try route number two. That's not a better solution. Number three. The third road people take is a combination of route one and route two. That is to say, they realize that they cannot live the Christian life on their own, detached from Christ or from the brotherhood, I might say, nor have they found success in throwing up their hands and resolving, well, if God wants me to bear fruit for Him, He's going to have to do it all. And so they come to root number three. And root number three is this. Lord, I need your help. Well, that's a change. It's different. I need your help. And I would guess that most of us are either on this road or we're ready to try it out. This is the conviction that we can and should strive to live the Christian life by ourselves, best we can, till we get stuck. Till we come up to a wall, an impediment of some sort. And from that point on, we need the Lord's help to get over the hump. And in this scenario, Jesus becomes an assister, a facilitator. He provides just the right amount of support to help us reach our spiritual goals. Sounds good, doesn't it? Sad to say, this is nothing more than Robert Schillerism or Joel Osteenism, to name two popular TV. Preachers. They both teach that you plus God can go places and do things that you by yourself cannot do. Thus you need God, you need Christ in your life to obtain your full potential. You need God to help you. The hidden agenda, however, is that we still think of ourselves as possessing some measure of goodness, some measure of wisdom, some measure of empowerment in ourselves. We, we, we believe we can do the basics, we say, of the Christian life. We just, we, we, we just need God for the heavy duty or the unforeseen crisis that may pop up. That's this third route. Ah, but listen to Paul. Paul says of himself, I know, I know that nothing good lives in me. That is in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. 
And so I find this law at work that when I want to do good, evil is right there with me. Romans 7, verse 18 and following. You plus God equals failure because the you part of the equation will not be able to live up to the demands of God's requirements. Just you and me, God. We just take on this task together, hand in hand. Let's go. You really think you can stay attached? And do your half, your side? Of the partnership? That's the fallacy of Lord help. I just need a helper. That brings us to number four. The preferred way. <laughs> and I'm just learning this myself. I'm struggling with it. So I'm sharing it with you this morning. That's the attachment to Christ route. The pilgrim traveling this path knows that in his own strength he has been a failure more times than he can count. He also knows that the let go and let God route has led to a dead end because he himself was not engaged in the process. He just stepped aside and quit. He has further concluded that he needs God for more than a helping hand when the going gets tough. I mean, praying in the hour of crisis when the black clouds have swept over his horizon is often demoralizing and ineffective because it's more a cry of desperation. Lord, I got myself into a pickle. Help! Oh yeah, that's a real relationship with God. Think about that. Then you're a user of God. You think God really is defining fellowship that way? He wants, he wants you just to call on Him when you're in trouble and you need His help. Now that's why I say I think most of us are on that category because that's the way we pray, isn't it? I do my best praying when I'm in trouble. I do my most fervent praying when I'm in trouble. But this pilgrim, on path number four, sings a new song in his heart. And the new song is this. I need thee every hour, most gracious Lord. No tender voice like thine can peace afford. I need thee, oh, I need thee, every hour I need thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior, I come to thee. I need thee every hour, now listen, I need thee every hour in joy or in pain. See, not just when I'm hurting. Come quickly and abide. Or life is vain. Life is vain. I need thee. Oh, I need thee. Every hour I need thee. 
Oh, bless me now, my Savior. I come to thee. In this hymn, Annie S. Hawks has expressed in verse that her, may I say, our need of God's grace is not just when the going gets rough in the hour of crisis. No. We need empowerment from God every hour of every day to live the Christian life. And the biblical principle here is not, Lord, help me, but rather, Lord, equip me. Equip me. You say, well, what's the difference? Well, suppose you wake up in the morning and as you contemplate your day, you realize, well, you know, last night the boss left a notice in my mailbox at work that he wants to see me first thing in the morning about a problem at work. Now, you don't know what the problem is, but you think, this cannot be good. <laughs> How will you face the boss? Well, you can wait to see what the crisis is, if there is a crisis, and then cry out, Lord, help! <laughs> but if no crisis... You anticipate being able to give a credible answer to the boss on your own. And if there is a crisis, you expect the Lord to step in and rescue you with an appropriate response. That's one scenario. Consider the second scenario, this fourth way. You could start your day by praying, Lord, this is the day that you have made. I do not know what it will bring forth, but I am asking that no matter what befalls, you will equip me to honor and glorify you. You're not waiting for a crisis to petition the aid of God. You know that in your flesh you can do nothing to please God. You need His empowerment for every detail of living, come what may, the unknown and the known. I wonder if we live our lives that way. The Apostle Paul had prayed for God to take away a malady that was affecting his ministry. At least he thought it was affecting his ministry adversely. And he says in his own words, three times, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for, listen to this now, my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. And that is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Ooh, that sounds like a contradiction. When I am weak, then I am strong. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 8 through 10. And again, in Philippians 4, 13, he says, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. 
Now, this attachment to Christ's root is not, it is not, I can do this. Nor is it, let go and let God. Nor is it, Lord, help. I'm in trouble. Rather, it is, Lord, equip me, because no one knows what a day will bring forth, but whatever comes my way, I want to be empowered by you to face it and magnify your power. And we're talking about hard attitudes here, not just the words you say. If you want to say during the day, Lord, help, in a, in a prayer, that's fine, as long as you're operating on the principle that whatever comes your way, you don't have simply a crisis mentality. This principle recognized that as born anew human beings, our person, our mind, our will, our emotions are to be engaged in living the Christian life. That is to say, we are there living it. We are meeting the demands. We are solving the problems. We're not out there in la la land. We're grafted into Christ. And it's going to look to the watching world like it is us living at our best. But the reality is that it is Christ's power within turning our weaknesses into strength, our ignorance into wisdom, and our timidity into courage. This is therefore not a crisis mentality. But it is an, an ongoing attachment to Christ mentality, a total dependence upon Jesus to equip us for the demands of life, to equip us in such a way that we will live out His promises and His commands to His glory. Paul lived his life this way. And we must too. Listen to what he says about his ministry. He says, We proclaim Him, speaking of Christ, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this I labor, I labor, struggling with all His energy. You get it? I'm doing the work, but it's with His energy, which is so powerfully works in me. Colossians 1, verse 28 and 29. Now this is not let go and let God, but neither is it I can do this. This is me. By the way, the, the word for struggling in this text here in Colossians is the Greek word agonizomai, from which we get agonize. I agonize to give forth the gospel. I'm that engaged in it. But it's Christ's power working out through me. It is an awareness that God is now my life. My life. Paul put it this way in Colossians 3, verse 3. For you died and your life, your life, is now hidden with Christ in God. That's where you're living. Or again, he says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. You've got to do that, but it's Christ in you working that. 
1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 and 20. Fellowship, brethren, is participating in the common life of Christ. Until that occurs, until that occurs, you do not know God. That's the only way the fruit is going to be, the Holy Spirit fruit, is going to be growing on your branch. It's if you're engrafted into Christ. Once it is established, your life is not your own anymore. You're empowered by God's Spirit. The grace that brought us to spiritual life, fellowship with God, is the same grace needed to sustain that spiritual life and fellowship with God. And brethren, if we catch the principle that this is a daily journey, not just a crisis journey, but a daily journey, then the road, num road number four makes for a glorious ride. It's a glorious ride. Say, well, Pastor, I just don't know how to work this all out practically. Well, you have to start somewhere. I'll just tell you some of the things I've been doing. I'm, I'm trying to look at, at all of life and all of daily's act, all the daily activities of life from the standpoint that if God's going to get any glory for it, I have to bring, now listen to me, I have to bring him consciously into the discussion. I'll give you an example. And I do this all the time now. I was installing a ceiling fan in one of our rooms. And I'm up there, and it's hot up there, and I'm working away with it, trying my, my arthritic fingers, and I'm trying to work with these bolts. And there are special nuts that, were, that go on the bolt. They have a um, neoprene washer inside. They're called a lock nut. But they're specifically dying because there's so much vibration when the fan is moving that the bolts loosen and you could lose a fan blade or whatever. So these are special nuts. They give you a whoop-de-doo. They give you two for each blade and no more. You know, if you lose one, you're in trouble. Well, I'm up there spinning away. I lost it. It hit the floor and went bing. Wherever it went, I don't know where it went. You say, well, what's that got to do with anything? I'm trying to hook up a fan to the glory of God. So how's that to the glory of God? Well, I could think of a number of ways. Stewardship, I didn't have somebody else putting up for me that I got to pay for. Uh, I don't have to install central air conditioning. I can use a fan. That saved me money. That's good stewardship of his resources. And on and on, you can think down those areas. But I lost the nut. So I'm praying, Lord, I need the nut. I need to find it. I don't have another one. They only gave me enough. So I'm all down on the floor and so forth, looking all over to find this piece of equipment. And the Lord directed me to it. Now, I do this kind of thing all day long. I'm mowing the lawn and the mower stalls, and I can't get it started. Lord, I only have half the lawn mowed. I need to finish this. The neighbor comes over from the, his side of the yard to my fence, and I, he wants to chat, and I go over, and I'm thinking... Lord, how can I share the gospel with Bill? I don't wait till I'm in crisis and then say, oh, I'm in a pickle. I better think about this. Whatever it is, all of life is to be lived out for the glory of God. 
And if you begin to live that way, you know, it'll, it, it, you're going to surprise yourself. You really will. You're going to say, wow, I didn't think I could pray about things. I pray about parking spots. You ever do that? <laughs> Lord, I got five gallons of paint that I got to carry out the door that's heavy. Get me right up by the door at Sherman Williams or wherever. Lo and behold, turn the corner. There it is. Thank you, Lord. Remember to thank him. You say, well, that's silly. No, you're, you're bringing all of life captured for Christ. And you're looking at life through the lenses of the grace of God who gives you life and breath and everything else that you have. Now, here's your assignment. If you're a believer here this morning, here's your assignment for the week. Begin every day with a prayer that's similar to this. You don't have to be these words. Make it up your own words. But something like this. Lord, everything that comes my way today requires your presence and your intervention. But I can do all things and will strive to do all things by your strength. And I'm going to try to figure this out by myself. But I'm looking to you to give wisdom and strength and all the things that I need. And if you're an unbeliever here this morning, here's the prayer you should be working on. Lord, I am used to fending for myself. Teach me to renounce my pride and my self-righteousness and grant me the grace of repentance and faith that I might come into fellowship with you, my Creator. Let's pray. Thank you, dear Christ, for helping us to struggle through this subject of fellowship. Help us to see that we're to be grafted into Christ. That Jesus isn't just a someday friend. He's not just a crisis facilitator. It isn't us plus Jesus that'll get us to eternity or will produce the fruit that's pleasing to God. It must be all of God working in us. As Paul says, he labors, but it's with the strength that Christ provides. We need that provision, dear Lord. For anyone here that doesn't know you, I pray that today you would know them, that you would call them by your spirit and draw them into your presence and into your kingdom. Grant them what they don't have, which is repentance, what they do not experience, which is faith. They're so used to fending for themselves and being their own person that the whole idea of submission to the will of God, the will of anybody, but really the will of God, is anathema to them. But I pray that today you would find them and draw them by your grace into that wonderful, wonderful life of renewal that comes when sins are washed away and we stand solidly on the foundation of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray with thanksgiving. Amen.